There is, there's no greater subject or person to learn about than our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Mark's account here shows us something very phenomenal. It shows us what the gospel looks like on display in the life and the person and work of Christ. Mark's gospel is packed with action and compassion. Jesus displays his power, his love, his skill as a teacher, and his patience with sinners continually through this gospel account. We see that continually brought to the forefront in Mark's action-packed book here. If you look with me, we'll let the train go by, but look with me at Mark 1.14. We've already covered this, but I want you to see how the gospel itself is on display through Jesus' objective preaching ministry and then how Jesus skillfully takes them from the teaching to the calling and to the equipping through his example in his life and ministry throughout the rest of this text that we're going to look at this morning. But first, look with me at 1, 14 through 20. begins here, it says, Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming, heralding the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed Jesus, followed him. I think Jesus shows us something about the nature of the gospel in this text. He shows us that those who hear God's gospel savingly are called to flesh out that message immediately as followers of Jesus, as disciples, as mathetes, as learners. And that's still true today, just as true as it was in the day Jesus said this to these men. It's true for us. In this passage, Jesus masterfully and pastorally teaches his disciples that they are called to go into service. And what I love is he tells them this. He says, follow me, I'll make you learners, I'll make you fishers of men. And then Jesus goes ahead and fleshes out what that looks like personally for them in the next section we will be focusing on this morning. See, Jesus wasn't just saying, do this. He said, do this, now watch me show you how. Let me explain it to you personally. Let me flesh out the gospel incarnationally so you can see what the object of truth that I profess will look like when God's grace touches men. Jesus does that himself in verses 29 through 34. That's what we're going to focus on this morning. Here, Mark's going to teach us that the gospel of God was proclaimed powerfully by Jesus and displayed compassionately by Jesus. We see that his disciples are being taught that they can follow his example here. We have to follow his example as well. The gospel must be heard objectively. It is an objective truth message. It must be objectively proclaimed and it must be compassionately brought forth. It also must be felt. Felt through our lives. That is our great commission that we've been given. It's an honor for us to do this for Christ, for his sake. Peter tells us that 
In chapter 2, you don't have to look at it, 2, 9 through 12, though, he tells us that we are a chosen people. We are ambassadors that are set apart to live and confess Jesus with our words and with our life. Throughout church history, people have failed to get this balance. And we have the liberals on one side and the fundamentalists on the other. Jesus was neither. He was biblical. He was God-honoring in his ministry. Liberals will neglect to proclaim the object of truth about Christ and sin. Fundamentalists neglect to show love and compassion like Christ. They can pound truth, but they forget truth should transform their lives and the way they approach others. Jesus didn't neglect either of these. We should not neglect these either. Look with me in Mark's gospel. Mark 1, 21 through 39. After he called them, it says this in verse 21. And they, notice the disciples are with him, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve him. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now we're going to stop there today. Because what I want you to see this morning is I want you to see that Jesus begins his ministry as we should begin our ministry by proclaiming truth, the authority of his word. But then he doesn't leave it there. He actually displays the power of his word incarnationally, personally. That's a lesson for us as a church. We are commanded and commissioned to go out and preach the gospel. That's what changes hearts, God's word, God's spirit. But we don't want to... We don't want to contradict the gospel by the way we treat people. If we say we believe in a God of mercy and grace, we must be a people of mercy and grace. If Jesus was willing to touch the defiled, we must be also. We'll never touch them like he did. He had the saving touch, but we have the saving truth that can touch them, that we objectively proclaim, and then we show them how it has changed us. That's what we're going to learn about this morning. In Mark 1, 21-39, Jesus teaches his disciples that, number one, the gospel of God should be declared powerfully with authority. The gospel of God should be declared, proclaimed 
with authority. Now, Jesus was the incarnate authority. However, we, the church, have been given his words. That's our authority. We proclaim the words of Christ. And we see the power of Jesus' words and the power of Jesus himself throughout this text, 21 through 28. Immediately on the Sabbath, he goes to a church, a synagogue, a place where people were gathered, an ecclesia in some sense. They were gathered together, a called together people meeting in a synagogue, Jewish. And he went there and was teaching. That was the tradition of the day. They would ask the the visiting rabbi to come by and allow him to speak. That was part of the tradition. He came in and taught them. And in verse 22, it describes his teaching as something that was astonishing. The word is amazing. It was beyond their human comprehension. They couldn't grasp the depth of his teaching. It was phenomenal. Because not just the teaching itself was deep, which I'm sure it was. We don't have the exact sermon that he taught here. We have other sermons he taught, and they were certainly deep. But it was the way in which he delivered that sermon. He delivered it to them as one who had authority. If you look there in verse 22, that word authority is actually the Greek word ekousia. It means Christ spoke out of himself, out of his own inherent authority as the living logos, the living word of God. He was the eternal Son, the eternal Word of God made flesh. He's speaking as that authority. He is speaking as the Word of God. And He is speaking authoritatively as one who has obeyed the Word of God. That's what makes somebody an authority. It's not just that they know something about a subject, but they know it, they live it, they love it. Jesus was teaching as one without sin. He was teaching with full conviction, because he had obeyed the very commands he was telling others to follow. He could do so, again, because he was God incarnate. He was preaching to them with power that came from inside of himself, not outside, like the scribes. The scribes always spoke as second-hand voices. They went to second-hand authorities. They spoke from the Mishnah. They spoke from, from commentaries. Jesus spoke out of himself. Matter of fact, go with me to Matthew 5 to see that. Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said of the, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you. Now, Jesus wasn't contradicting the Scriptures. He was contradicting their, basically, their commentaries. The things that they had learned from other rabbis. He is saying, you have heard it, Wrong. I'm actually going to give you an exposition of what God Himself means by these commandments. God's looking at the heart. God's looking at the intent. He's not just looking at the surface. You're looking at the surface. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is saying, your, your preaching is only superficial. What I'm telling you is what God intended. This is amazing because Jesus is walking into places like synagogues, gatherings of Jews, saying, your teachers are wrong. I'm the authority. Now, here's the thing. You and I don't have that ability. We don't walk into places and say, listen to me because I am the authority. But what we do have is we have the authoritative word of God. 
And when someone is teaching contrary to this, we can come to them with this word and say, listen to this. I know you heard pastor so-and-so say it. Your family tradition has said it. Your religious tradition has taught it. But what does Jesus say about it? This is our authority. We come back to Jesus' voice. His voice is still the authority of our church. We come back there over and over again because it's through His voice that the miraculous comes forth. He commands things to happen through His Word, and they come to pass. We see that back in Mark 1, 23. In one twenty-three, it says, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. That means simply a defiled spirit, a spirit that's not from God. That means a fallen angel, a demon. Simply all that means. Now, angels were created for a purpose in God's economy. When He created all the angels, they were created to be messengers to glorify God. When Satan fell and took a third with him, they became messengers of Satan. They became those who would oppose the message of God, those who would interrupt the message of God. And that's really what's going on here. We have the incarnate Holy One coming into the synagogue, proclaiming authoritative truth, rebuking, correcting, and loving the people with God's Word. And the angel, the fallen angel here in particular, is saying, enough! We know why you're here. You're here to expose us and put us into those eternal chains that are promised for all those who defile your word. And you know, if you'll notice throughout the Gospels, you'll notice that demonic activity is almost at its peak in the Bible. It's because of the one who had arrived. The king of glory had showed up. The sovereign one had incarnated himself and the demons knew their time was short. So what I want you to understand about that is that kind of activity, I believe, is really primarily only seen in these accounts. I don't think we see that same kind of activity today. I'm not saying that there's not demon-possessed people. I believe that's possible. But the kind of outlandish things and the opposition, verbal opposition we see, I think was primarily because of the sovereign one who had arrived, the king. And they knew their time was short. They were crying out. That's what happens here. He cried out. That's a loud voice that he exerted this rebuke in. He says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, this is amazing. The demon is affirming Jesus' authority. He is declaring the authority of Jesus. Now, Jesus doesn't want him to at this point. Because what the demon's wanting to do in doing this is say, look, I'm pointing to him, I'm connected with him somehow, I'll defile his ministry from this point on. So Jesus says, I don't, need your, I don't need your kind of promotion. I don't need your encouragement, so be quiet. It's an interesting term that he uses here in verse 25 when it says, Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent, be silent and come out of him. It actually means shut up. That's really what it means, simply. Jesus commands this demon, and the demon does what he commands, which testifies to Jesus' authority. But he wouldn't allow him to be his own promoting manager. He didn't need the demon to make this kind of proclamation. Jesus was going to declare his authority powerfully his own way through his disciples, through his ministry, not through demons. Now, if you go on down 
it says that the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, it came out of this man. It actually shrieked, screamed, made the man scream, took control of his vocal cords, and actually shook him violently, though it didn't hurt him. But it had to obey the one who called it out because he had authority. Again, he had authority because of who he was, the sovereign king of glory. And they were amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, what is this? A new teaching? A fresh teaching? A refreshing teaching with authority? With power? He commands even the unclean spirits, the demons, and they obey him. And at once, of course, his fame spread everywhere throughout the region, the surrounding region of Galilee. What we see here is that Christ enters into a powerful public ministry in the synagogues, and he declares his own authority powerfully there. I think this speaks volumes about God's intention on where he wants to be declared powerfully at. He wants to be declared powerfully first with his people. He wants his praises to come from his people first. If you'll notice, who does Paul go to first? He goes to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. He wants his people to bring him praise. And Jesus comes into the people group that are gathered there, the Jews at the time in the synagogue, and he proclaims his own authority so they would praise him. And so they did. Jesus powerfully captivated them. He captivated sinners by declaring his authoritative word. That is what captures sinners. Not our manipulation, not our skills. It is the word of God explained, exegeted, brought out so that sinners can see the glory of the Savior and the depth of their sin and be captivated by His authority and His mercy. In 21 through 22, the people are astonished, it says, by His authoritative teaching. His authoritative teaching testified that He was blessed by God as we saw at His baptism. He was blessed by the triune God. It displayed Jesus' glory, His holiness. He was pure and His teaching was pure and powerful. You think about this. If a man stands in the pulpit and he leaves a, lives a debaucherous life and then he tells you, quit sinning, how much authority does he have? Even if he's quoting Scripture, what's his authority like? It's undermined. It's weak at best. Jesus could stand in the pulpit and He could say, Love God with everything you have, because that's the way I love Him. And no one could argue that, because Jesus fulfilled not only the letter of the law, but the intent of the law. In 23 through 26, the demonized man, the demonized man wasn't astonished, he was set free. He was set free by Jesus' authoritative compassion. It's Jesus' word that set the demon-possessed man free. It's the word of God that sets sinners free from enslavement to sin. It displays God's mercy. When God's word comes into the life of a sinner and they hear it and God grants saving faith and repentance, they are set free because of God's mercy, not because of their deeds, not because of their works, not because of their religion but solely based on His grace and the work of Jesus, His Son. Verse 27, the demon himself, or demons possibly, 
the demons were captivated. They weren't set free. They were captivated by Jesus' sovereign authority. Jesus displays here His power, His authority as the sovereign King of glory. This is all affirming the deity of Jesus. Whoever says that Jesus is not God obviously has never read Mark's gospel. Jesus is dominating everything. He is ruling over men. He is ruling over teachers. He is ruling over demons. He is ruling over all things. And he displays power over all things in the gospel of Mark. This had an effect on the people in verse 28. They were not only astonished, they were also now captured by Jesus' refreshing power and mercy that was exhibited through his authority. He could set sinners free. He could transform this unclean man and make him actually a new man. Bring forth the demon from his body and then go forth victoriously because of the work that God has done through Christ's word. That gave hope to men. And what Jesus is doing, when you go back in Mark, Jesus says he came basically to say that the kingdom of God is at hand. All these miracles that he just did with his word, his authority in his teaching, and his authority over demons, his authority to set men free, all that is giving them a glimpse of what the kingdom will look like under his authority. You'll hear his word. You'll be satisfied with God's directions. You will in the kingdom be set free from sin eternally. In the kingdom, you will not be captured by anything but his glory. This is all going to happen. And they, they sort of got a glimpse of this, like a taste of this, and they got excited. Look, look, this is, this is hopeful. Do you know anybody that's sick? you know anybody that's like that guy in the synagogue, possessed? There's one here who's changing all this. Let's go see him. Let's gather up everyone you know and go because he has authority and power. He had authority and power again, church, because he was the king. He was the king of all the world. When Christ speaks, we should hear him as our king. We should hear his power and his authority in his word. When we gather together publicly to worship like they did in the synagogue, when we come together to worship corporately around his word, listen, we know that this Jesus is still speaking. He still speaks to us and He shows us mercy. He still speaks to us and displays His power over sin and evil in our lives. He still speaks to us and gives us hope that in the future sin will be eliminated completely. We get that hope from His authoritative Word today. When the Word of God is explained, proclaimed, preached with power and with authority, this is the result. There is hope for sinners in the church. We know that God is still speaking. Now, He doesn't speak to you and I through an audible voice that comes into your head. He doesn't speak that way. He has chose a more precise way to speak to you, a way that could not be distorted. Because frankly, folks, we don't know if it's a demon or a TV show or a dream that's speaking to us in our minds, right? We know positively, though, when we read this book, that God speaks clearly and articulately, and powerfully. He still speaks through the revelation 
of his once for all time delivered to the saints word, which is Jesus Christ. Look with me at Hebrews 1 to see that. The word, Jesus' word, is our final authority in the church. The word of God is our final authority in the church because the word that we receive came directly from the sovereign one. He has revealed to us all that we need for life and godliness in his word. God's given you secondary authorities like me, an elder, a pastor. But I am only an authority inasmuch as I accurately handle his authoritative message. That message points to Jesus as being the final authority. Look what it says in Hebrews 1. 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. Now this is implying that he doesn't do that like this any longer. Okay? He doesn't use diverse ways or prophets who tell the future. He says, long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he spoke to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. His name is more excellent. His nature is more excellent. He was the creator of these messengers. He has came to us now and spoken clearly through His Word, through His Spirit. He has revealed to us in Scripture His authoritative commands for us. That is what needs to be proclaimed in the church. We've got no room for story time. We have no authority in our illustrations. Our authority and our power comes from the accurate explanation of God's Word. It must be preeminent in the church. It should be proclaimed powerfully for God's glory. Because in the Word, we see the glorious Word of God that became flesh manifest. We see the righteous requirements that God demanded satisfied by Jesus, which was God's eternal plan from before the foundation of the world. All that is powerfully displayed to us in Scripture. The Bible directs us. It directs me as your pastor. It directs you as the church. It's Jesus' voice that should capture us, should captivate us, and should actually set us free from bondage to any other voices. You don't have to be confused. Who's teaching truth? Who's the guy that's really from God? Well, go to God's Word and examine it for yourself. It is a powerful, powerful witness that will show you the truth. Now, go back with me to Mark. Mark 1.25. Again, it's Jesus' voice, Jesus' word that captures sin and sinners and sets men free. It's not our voice. It's not my authority. I don't have some mystical pixie dust to throw on people and make them new and different and all this. I have God's word. I can call for them to do something. I can call for them to repent and believe in it. But I can't call anything else to happen. I can't make them a new person. I can't create a new heart in them. That is God's prerogative. And He does it through the proclamation of His Word 
But it's not because of my authority. It's because that word is alive and active. Now, in 125, what I want you to notice is something that can be confusing. Sometimes people will come to Mark and they'll think, okay, this is the pattern of ministry we can follow here. We can go into places and we can see these demon-possessed people and these different things that are happening and, and we can go up like Jesus and we can say, come out. No, we can't. That's not our prerogative. We don't have that ability in and of ourselves. Jesus had an inherent authority. He came up and said, Fimu, which means shut up, come out. He could say that, again, because that is his prerogative. He is, obviously, their creator. He is their God, whether they want to acknowledge him and worship him as they ought to or not. He is the creator and God of all things, including fallen angels. So let's be clear that it's God the Son, who has the power to do what we see in 125. He has the authority, and he knows the purpose of the demon anyway, and we don't. If you think about the story of Paul, when he talks about the thorn in his flesh, and it's mentioned there what that thorn is, it's a messenger of Satan that was sent to him to humble him. I don't think the devil sent it to him to humble him. God allowed that demon to do what it wanted to do, which would be attack the apostle through false teachers in the church, at Corinth Church. But it was God who allowed it to do that for his divine purposes. And if Paul would have rebuked it in the name of Jesus and ran it away, he would not have been humbled and he would not have been sanctified as God had ordained. So we need to be clear. We, we don't have the authority that Jesus has here. We don't have the authority to even know for sure if someone's demon-possessed. I can't even see inside someone's heart and know for certain they're possessed by a demon. We can look back in history and see people we think might have been, Adolf Hitler, right? I still don't know that positively because I know this, there's enough human depravity in us for all of us to be an Adolf Hitler. We don't need a demon to stimulate it. We're depraved enough on our own. But what I do know is we're not called to go around casting out demons. Matter of fact, some people who think they're called to do that will find out on the day of judgment that Jesus never knew them and he cast them out. What we do have the authority to do, though, is this, according to Scripture. We have the authority that Jesus has gave us to call men to repent and believe in Jesus' work and Jesus' words. That is our authoritative command from Jesus. When Jesus said we would do greater works than these, than healing people, than casting out demons, this is what he meant. The greater work is calling people to repent and believe in the gospel, which will set you free from demons, from depravity, and the wages of sin, according to what it says in Mark, even. Mark 1.15, he says there, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's Jesus' pattern for us. Look at Romans 1.16. In Romans 1.16... We see what we have the authority to do, what we should be proclaiming. 116 says, For I am not ashamed of the good news or the gospel, for it is the power. It is the dunamis. It is the inherent power of God. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. We can call upon that power. We use the word of God, the gospel, and call men to believe in that power. Look at 10.17. Here's how we do it. 10.17 says we do it by accurately explaining who Jesus is. 
That's how men are set free. That's how we call men out of darkness and into light. We do it this way. For faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It means hearing accurate words about who Jesus is. This is good to know. Because you and I don't have the supernatural ability to walk around casting out demons, healing the sick, and actually knowing who is demon-possessed or not. But what we do know is, according to Scripture, all men, and I mean all men and women, are born in sin and in need of salvation. And we have been given a message that we can proclaim that God will use effectually to call His people to salvation. Though we can't do the supernatural act, we can do what we are responsible to do. We can go forth, proclaim this message, and call men to repent and believe in Jesus. Today, Jesus' authoritative word and his sovereign power is still what sets men free from enslavement to sin and demons. And it's also what sanctifies his people progressively. This is the glorious truth about the gospel. The gospel cuts both ways. The gospel is what God uses to bring us to himself, to show us our sins, show us his grace, his justice, his authority. And once we are saved by his grace through this gospel message, then that same message comes to us as saints and keeps us humble. It sanctifies us. It makes us thankful. It motivates us to do missions, to go into the world. It is the power of God that brings us joy as Christians. We can never outgrow the gospel. The gospel is key to salvation and sanctification, church. The gospel has to be proclaimed, though. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus had a high view of preaching. And teaching. Throughout Mark's gospel, you see this. He had a high view of preaching the word in the public worship service. He wanted his people to be informed. He wanted them to have the revelation of God. He still wants that today. He has a high view of preaching today. Turn with me to 2 Timothy to see that. How we worship God when we gather corporately matters to God. It matters to God because when we come together corporately and we say we're going to bring Him honor, praise, and adoration, if we do any of that apart from His revelation, we are setting up an idolatrous attitude in our hearts. The only way to remove the the idol of our heart in our worship is to do it according to what Jesus says, what He commands in Scripture. God God is not pleased with every sacrifice. You know that, right? Nadab and Abihu... They decided they could improve on their offering to God. So they figured out a way to do something a little different in worship. And God strikes them dead. He will be worshipped according to His Word. He'll not be worshipped at all. We must be submitted to that Word. Jesus was calling us to do that. He called us to do that through the Apostle Paul here in 2 Timothy when he gave him this revelation. In 2 Timothy 3, verse Let's go 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's some exciting news up front, right? That's only going to happen if you know what a godly life looks like. You know where you learn about a godly life? Not from your experience. You learn about a godly life from God's revelation in Scripture. Jesus is the standard for that life. He gives us directions through the book of Colossians and Ephesians 
of what a godly life should look like. But he says, if you live this, and understanding that you must be informed by what this is, if you live a godly life, you will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, minnow, or abide, don't depart, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Now that's implying that there is something to be learned. (laughs) Doctrinal, didactic. Continue in doctrine, what you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That's an amazing passage. He just told Timothy, the Old Testament speaks of Jesus. Faith in Jesus is revealed in the doctrine of the Old Testament because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. You need to know This, you need to proclaim this if you're going to see men and women changed in the church. This is a pastoral letter. That's what he's getting at. In verse 16, he says, All Scripture, all Scripture is theonoustos, breathed out from God, breathed out by God. God breathed. It's alive with power, His power. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent or complete. Equipped for every good work. Now, this is important. If we're going to call the church together to know the gospel and love the gospel and work in the gospel, we have to know what the revealed truth about the gospel is. Then once we know that truth, what it's saying here is that truth will transform us from the inside out and will equip us to go into the world and show the truth of the gospel, not just with our mouth, but with our deeds as well. But it starts in the church. So chapter 4, verse 1 says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach halagos, the authoritative word. The one and only is what this means. The definite article here. The word, the Bible. There is no room in a pulpit for anything but the Bible. There's nothing... A man can say that's more important than the Word of God. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but, they, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded, enduring or endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your calling, your ministry. This was Jesus' way of preparing His people to take this object of truth and use it compassionately in the world. If we don't come together around His Word and exalt Jesus through the revelation He's given us, we'll never be ready to go into the world and exalt Jesus as a witness. Frankly, we'll go through persecution and we'll run away because we're not founded on a solid rock unless we know truth. When missionaries go into other countries, they go in with a lot of zeal. They go in with zeal because they they love people and they don't want people to go to hell, which is great. It's a great motive, but it's not enough. Because those people they love so much when they go into those countries and they start to labor with them, they find out those people are just as depraved and wicked as the people in the United States. And they're just as obnoxious. And they don't love them so much anymore. 
They're kind of having wishes for home. But if you go in there, not because you love people, but because you love God's glory, and you proclaim the glorious truth of Jesus when it's hard and when it's easy, and you do it because you want Him to be exalted through the proclamation of truth, God will use that and make you compassionate toward those people. You will be equipped and prepared to objectively speak truth and compassionately apply that truth. But when we gather corporately, we have to do so primarily to exalt Jesus. And through that, we're edified, we're equipped to proclaim His Word and do His work. We don't want to ever let this gathering, right now, what we're doing, we never want to let this gathering become routine or just simply religious. Okay, it is a routine, and I know that it means that we come here every week, we do the same types of things, but it is not a routine in the sense of what we are actually now being exposed to. When I read to you that Jesus goes in and sets this man free, God himself is addressing us, saying there is hope for sinners through my son's word. There's nothing routine about this. This is a miraculous book. And just, just let this overwhelm you. You are being addressed by God through his word when you gather here with the church on Sunday mornings. This is a unique time. This is a holy convocation. You are brought together for God to address the people that he has purchased with his son's own blood. He's brought you together. He's embraced you so that you would be captivated by His Word, His glory, and His grace so that you would take that message and share it with the world around you. But ask yourself this morning, are you captivated by the Word in the Gospel of Mark? Are you so captured and captivated by Jesus' authoritative voice that you're willing to go and actually become His voice tomorrow at work? Are you so amazed that you, a sinner saved by grace, can now understand the glorious truth about Jesus? So so amazed by that that you will go out and tell somebody about him today? I mean, what we don't want to do is we don't want to become practical atheists, right? That's what happened in the synagogues. That's what happens in a lot of churches. Yes, we, we believe in the confession of faith. Yes, we believe in the Bible. Yes, we believe in Jesus. But we never look like it. We never live it out. That's like an atheist, right? Now, I'm not trying to bring a rebuke on anybody today. I'm speaking to myself. I find it very easy to stand before you and preach this gospel. It is difficult to take it into the street. I know that. It, it's costly. It costs us time. It costs us money. It costs us sacrifice. But Jesus is worth it. He sacrificed a lot to bring it to us. And we who are His blood-bought disciples should, because of His mercy toward us, should be able to captivate sinners with the message we have received personally. If you've been saved by God's grace through the life and death of Jesus the Messiah, you should be able to captivate people who listen to you. You should be able to amaze them with the truth claims of Scripture and your own personal testimony. Like Paul, the apostle, I am the chiefest of all sinners, but he saved me so that I could show forth God's 
mercy. That's what we're called to do as Christians. That's what we see happening in Mark. God comes in, gives us His object of truth to transform us so that we could now go out and actually incarnate this message. So secondly, Mark 1, 29-34 teaches us that number two, the gospel of God should not only be taught, but it should be incarnated personally and compassionately by His church, by His people. Because that's what Jesus Himself did. He fleshed it out. He lived out the message He was proclaiming. He proclaimed it and He displayed the power of God's gospel when He went into the synagogue and when He went into private. And that's what we're called to do also. It's easy to affirm everything here corporately. But what really matters is what we take from this corporate gathering and share privately. You are called. The only reason you've been called to salvation is to be a witness for Jesus. If He wanted you just to go to heaven, He would have taken you there when He saved you. He left you here to be an ambassador, a chosen vessel. Your duty, your calling in life is to glorify Jesus through the gospel, proclaiming it and living it out. Jesus did that Himself. He is a masterful pastor and teacher here. He tells His disciples, follow Me, I'll make you fishers of men. And then He just goes and starts showing them what it looks like. Here's how you deliver this message with authority. And power, you do it incarnationally, personally, sacrificially, and with real love. Look what it says in 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill. Just a side note, Simon was married. Peter was married. Kind of eliminates him as the first pope. He was a married man. He had a sick mother-in-law. And the very fact that she's there with him indicates that her husband's probably deceased. And the very fact that she's laying there in this condition and he immediately tells Jesus about her means that her condition is deadly. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him, Jesus, about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her. And she began to serve him. Just phenomenal. Phenomenal. What we see there is Jesus, we see Him proclaiming the gospel first publicly in the synagogues, and then He now moves and proclaims it incarnationally in private, and He's, he's coming into this region here where He has basically set up His headquarters, and His disciples say, come and stay with us after you've preached on the Sabbath here at the synagogue. And Peter says in particular, come to my house. They knew that they could turn to Jesus after watching him minister in the synagogue. They could turn to him with this great need because they saw this is the one who had authority over men and demons. And so they turned to Jesus in their time of need. And what they found was they found incarnate mercy. They found God's mercy made manifest. And listen to this, church. It wasn't just for the elect. God shows mercy to sinners every single day. Every sinner. Every sinner that takes a breath is borrowing from God's mercy. They don't deserve that. We didn't deserve that. In His common grace, He moves and ministers to men and women every day in providence. 
Unbelievers rejoice when their babies are born. Right? Unbelievers have good days. The sad part is their best day on earth, their best day on earth is the best day they'll ever experience apart from saving grace. And that grace, again, was manifested. It doesn't say anything about Peter's mother-in-law being a believer. It's not mentioned there that she was a believer. I would say primarily everyone in the synagogue uh, would have been sort of uh, religious, but not necessarily children of God. I would say that the mobs that come later to Jesus certainly weren't all saved. There's no indication of that in Scripture. Yet God in Christ, God the Son, shows incarnate mercy toward this woman. Verse 30, notice what verse 30 says. Verse 30 actually describes her condition for us. She lay ill with a fever. The Greek word there for fever is pereso, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Pereso. Pereso means that in her body there was a burning fire, and this indicates that it was one that was so bad that it was actually one that gripped her. In other words, it was leading to death. It was something they couldn't break on their own. I'm sure they tried remedies. But she was in a pereso. She was in a, in a burning fire kind of fever. Dr. Luke, in his account, in Luke 4, he describes the same account, and he says this, she was in the grip of a high fever. She was in the grip of a high fever. And then in Mark 1.31, it says that Jesus did something. This is the place where I just, I don't know what to do here. I don't know what to say except, this is amazing. He came and took her, he took her by the hand. This is phenomenal. This teaches us that God cares about people. She wasn't just a mass of atoms. She wasn't just a soul that would end up in hell or in heaven to him. She was his creation. And he touched her. Don't you ever read that and just wonder why? Why did he touch her? Why did he do this? He spoke and the world leapt into existence. He could have spoken and said, be healed, woman. But instead, he touches her. Just think about this. He came into this earth to save you in a tangible way by using those same hands and having them nailed to a cross. And he could have just spoken it and had it done. But instead, he made his love manifest. He came and he touched her. Personally, compassionately. And he touched her individually. He took her by the hand and he tenderly lifted her up. And he did so with, again though, in the amazing illustration here of divine authority and incarnate mercy. He did for her what no man, no doctor could do. He raised her up divinely, supernaturally, He did so in such a way that she was healed instantaneously. Have you ever had a fever? And the fever breaks, and you feel like jumping up and cooking dinner for everybody? That's what she does. This is an instantaneous healing. She jumps up. He raised her. 
He did so again with his hands. He did that to display to us that he cares about us. He healed her. And it changed her. And church, there's a lesson in that for us. He healed her of a physical malady, and she responded by serving him out of love and mercy. We should respond like Peter's mother-in-law. We should respond, I think, to a greater degree. Because Jesus reached out to us. Again, he reached out with his nail-scarred hands, and he touched us by his grace. And now, in the amazing part of God's call in our life, is He not only saves us, now He calls us to not not just be recipients of this grace, but to be the messengers of this grace. He calls us to be His hands. He calls us, the church, to be His mouth, to be His feet, to go and proclaim His message personally and sacrificially by sharing it with others, with the lost. We're called to take the gospel message, proclaim it, and do so with mercy like Jesus. In Mark 1, 32-34, I think Jesus shows us His mercy by showing us the fact that He picked out one woman and spent time caring for her when He would have been exhausted from a day of ministering in the synagogue. If you've ever had a hard, long day and you come home and you find out somebody's sick, Just think about how easy it would be to say, I've done my duty for the day, find somebody else. But instead, immediately, he says in Mark's gospel, he went to this one woman. And then on top of that, he began to show mercy to masses of people. Look at verse 32. Mark 1, 32. That evening at sundown, that's the end of the Sabbath day, they brought to him all who were sick or Oppressed by demons. That's two distinct categories. There were sick people and demon-possessed people. Don't get those two mixed up, okay? They brought him all the defiled people. And think about this. When the Sabbath was over, all the people in that area had heard this testimony of what happened in the synagogue, how a man had been set free from a demon, how Jesus had taught with new authority, with power and grace. And they all decided, we've got to go to Peter's house. Wherever this man is, we've got to go there. They begin to tell one another. They became evangelists, if you will. And all the masses of people came flooding to Peter's house. There were a mob gathered there outside his door. Peter's door was surrounded. His house was surrounded by demonized and diseased people. And Jesus doesn't say, lock the door. I've done God's duty today. I'm through. My ministry ended from the time I walked out of the pulpit. No. He shows us the gospel incarnate here. I want you just to think about this for just a second. Imagine what this would have looked like. You're at Peter's house, and a mob comes down the street. And it's not a regular mob of people. It is a motley crew. It is a crew of demonized, demon-possessed people, probably convulsing and cursing and angry, and their family members pulling them down the street, and people who are diseased, sick at their stomachs, covered in who knows what, sick, defiled, disgusting, 
Just imagine for a minute, you're there and you're in Peter's house and the mob arrives, you hear the noise, you hear it, you see this sickening sight and you can smell this miserable mob on top of all this. Can you not? Have you ever been in a place where people are sick and the place and the conditions aren't well kept? That aroma of death and sickness was everywhere. And just imagine that sight. Imagine what you and I would do. I know what I would do. Nate and I would do the same thing. Where is the, the hand cleanser? I'm going to stick it up my nose and everywhere else so I don't have to smell this. Right? What? That's what we would do. I would be done. I, you know, I, I, I preached. I already did my duty. They should have heard it. That's not what Jesus did. Imagine the incarnate Son of God at the beginning of His ministry opens His incarnate eyes and beholds sin made manifest. The results of sin were everywhere. He could smell it in his incarnate nostrils. He could hear it in his incarnate ears. And he could see the misery on those people he created for his glory. And he had compassion on them. And we, we must see people the way Jesus sees people. It is, it is important. It is essential to get the gospel right. But if you get the gospel right and you tuck it in your back pocket and you hang out with all the nice people and never share it, you have missed the gospel message. He came for the defiled and the demonized and the desperate and the foul like me and like you. And we are called to take his message, incarnate it, and deliver it to those same people. We are no better, church. And we all know it. We know the depth of our depravity. And yet Jesus... In his incarnate love and compassion, he steps out of that door into that mob and he touches them. It's just amazing. He labors, from what I read and understand from Scripture here, it appears that he labors all night long. Because it even speaks of him getting up early in the next morning and going out to pray. It's almost as if he never went to sleep. And yet the priority would be that he prayed. After all this night of ministry, in Mark 1.34, verse 33 actually, it says, The whole city was gathered together at the door. And then 34 says, And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. This, this was a picture of the kingdom to come. In the kingdom to come, there will be no sickness, no more death. In the kingdom to come, there will be no more demons. There will be no more evil. Sin will be eradicated. Satan and his demons and all those who follow after him will be cast into the lake of fire eternally. And anyone today who has not trusted in this Jesus will be there with them. If you haven't trusted in Christ today, if you haven't truly confessed that you are what the Bible says you are, an offender, you are a self-righteous person who is actually an idol worshiper, you worship yourself, if you don't see yourself that way and turn from that and turn to God and trust in His Son's work and His life and His righteousness and His death, you will find yourself with those demons. However, if you turn and put your life in His hands, the ones that became incarnate, you'll experience 
healing like this. Jesus physically cared for these people for hours on end. Just imagine this. Picture Jesus for just a moment. Walks into the crowd. He looks like any other Jew. He is not beautiful to look at, to behold. Yet he has a presence that these people are drawn to. There is hope in this one. He walks into the crowd. And I do not believe the way it reads in Scripture that he walked in and says, Be healed. He healed them. And it very well could be that he did so just like he did this woman who lay with a fever. He touched them. Now, a Jew is not supposed to do that. They're defiled. He would be unclean. But he was never defiled. He was never unclean. He had nothing to be defiled within him. He was holy and pure from the inside out. And I could just see Jesus crying with these people, hugging these people, and expressing his love and compassion for these people. That's what he's going to do for you and I in heaven. In the kingdom to come, we can look forward to this. All of our physical ailments removed. All of evil's influence removed. And all we have is Christ. His touch, His healing, His words, His presence will be with us forever. His love will be tangible. You'll be able to touch Him. You'll be able to hear Him speak. (laughs) The one who cried out from the cross, it is finished. He will say to you, come home, my child. I have done what it takes to heal you, to restore you. And nothing can remove that. He's going to call you to that. Now, I say all that just to say this. If we have been given that great promise and privilege and that we can see in this narrative here that there is hope for the the weak and the weary because Jesus manifested His compassion for them personally, we should be compelled as His people to do likewise. I don't want to guilt you into evangelism. That is wrong. I want to point you to the glory of Jesus and watch the Spirit of God compel you and drive you out of worship and adoration for His grace and His mercy. Go into the world with compassion and reach out to the hurting with the gospel of Jesus that transforms sinners like me and like you. You've been given that message to incarnate that message. I have much more to say and not enough time. But let me just say this. You read Matthew 6. I'm sorry, not Matthew 6. John 6. It's an eye-opening passage. Read through the entire chapter. In John 6, there's a portion there at the beginning where Jesus feeds the 5,000. When you get to the end of that chapter, that group of people, nearly all of those people, left him. He didn't begrudge them. He didn't hold back from them at the beginning, though he knew they would leave him. He knew they would not be his disciples. He knew that he was feeding people who were most likely bound for an eternal separation in hell from his glory. Yet he showed them great mercy and compassion. And he said, toward the end of that passage, 
he said that God would grant his people salvation. He didn't say we should actually be the ones looking for the big E stamped on their back. He calls us to go out and proclaim this message and watch him bring in those people that are his. We are commissioned. We are called forth as his people to stand out in the world and proclaim Jesus and watch him do the work. But just ask yourself, are you prepared to do this? Are you prepared this morning to incarnate the gospel you have received? Are you prepared to do that? Are you prepared to do is what Jude says, to go in as, as if it were into the flames and pull people out, even if it costs you dearly, even if it costs you your time, your money, your job, your life. Are you willing, for the glory of Jesus' name, are you willing to go into the darkness and declare the light? Jesus was. Jesus was willing. And he was willing to do so for the glory of his name, for the glory of God. And he calls us in his glorious, glorious calling as disciples to be his witnesses, ambassadors. Now I'm going to leave you with a more compelling sermon than my own. I'm going to leave you with the words from our beloved brother, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, concerning our duty this morning and our privilege and our delight. Oh, you that preach Christ, preach Him boldly. No cowardly lips must proclaim His invincible gospel. Oh, you that preach Christ, never choose your place of labor, never turn your back on the worst of mankind. If the Lord should send you to the borders of perdition, go there and preach Him with full assurance that it shall not be in vain. O oh, you that would win souls, have no preference as to which they are. If you have a choice, select the very worst. Remember, my master's gospel is not merely for the moralist in his respectable dwelling, but for the abandoned and the fallen in the filthy dens of the outcast. The all-conquering light of the Son of Righteousness is not for the dim dawn alone, to brighten it into the full blaze of day, but it is meant for the blackest midnight that ever made a soul to shiver as in the shadow of death. The name of Jesus is high over all, in heaven and earth and sky. Therefore, let us preach it with authority and confidence, not as though it were an invention of men. He has said, He will be with us, and therefore nothing is impossible. The word of the Lord Jesus cannot fail to the ground, cannot fall to the ground, rather. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it, it cannot fail. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The Lord shall bruise Satan under our feet shortly. There is no exclusion put upon any tribe or clan. No classes are laid under ban. No individuals are exempted. Therefore, church of Christ, by the love you bear to your crucified master, by his wounds and death for you, and by his living love to you, Seek out the lost and gather together the outcasts. You fishers of men, 
Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. You sowers of holy seed, go abroad and sow the untrodden wastes. You consecrated builders, break away from old foundations and lay fresh groundwork for a larger temple for your God and King. Surely the spirit of love in a church will suggest this. Cannot do better than Spurgeon on that subject. But just think about it. The love you've received is what compels you to go see the temple enlarged for the glory of your king. See, it's not just because people are going to hell because they're rebels that we go out and tell them this message. We should be heartbroken over that. But we go out there because Jesus' glory is worth their coming in. He should be praised by all men. So let us go out. Let us go out to the highways and the hedges and compel them by the love of Christ we have experienced to come to Him. Father, we thank You. We thank You that we can be Your ambassadors. We thank You for that and we repent. We repent for having not gone into this world and declaring how wonderful You are, how gracious You have been toward us. We repent that we have held on to the truth in such a way that we, we have robbed others from seeing your glory. We believe that you want your glory manifested. And we believe that you want it declared beginning in the church and through the church as we go into the world and incarnate Christ. We pray that you would equip us to do that today. We pray that we would be moved by your mercy and revelation to exalt the name of Jesus and reach out to the hurting. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.